0: Thank you so much for being here um, for Shelter and Solidarity's very first weekend edition show. Um, Shelter and Solidarity is a biweekly conversation with activists, artists, academics, and authors. And on these brand new weekend shows, we get to take a deep dive with one author at a time and really get into their new work. I'm Rachel Eurasius Patton. I'm coming in from Boston. And joining me as guest co-host today is Dr. Bobby Lee Smart, a sociology professor and faculty advocate from Southern California. Bobby Lee, do you have any opening remarks?
1: Um, I'm just really excited to be here and co-hosting and getting to have this conversation about social class, which I've talked to my students a lot about. And I'm curious um, to hear more from our guests about how we talk to them about working class versus middle class specifically. So
0: that's it. We're super lucky to have Dr. David Rodiger here as our very first guest. Um, he is the Foundation Distinguished Professor of American Studies and History at the University of Kansas, and he has written many books. So today we'll be talking his latest book, The Sinking Middle Class of Political History, out now on OR Books. How are you
2: today? I'm just fine. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.
0: So before we get started, um, I just wanna remind everyone to keep your mics muted when you're not talking. We are gonna start taking questions from the audience at about the 30 minute mark. So around that time, if you have any questions, please indicate it in the chat either to all of us um, or to one of our co-producers if you would like us to ask the question. And let's get started. David, your book challenges a lot of the assumptions that we have about social class in America, both how we define it and how we deal with it. Um, For people in our audience who haven't read your book, how would you lay it out in a few minutes? And could you just tell us why it's so relevant to talk about today?
2: Um, Yes, thank you. And uh, again, thanks. And I know this is kind of a collective project and I uh, love the project. I, I love your name. Um, I mean, I like your individual names, but I like the um, collective name that, that you have uh, a lot. I didn't realize until the uh, beginning that uh, Hardball Press, which I'm a big fan of, was a, a partial sponsor of this. So um, glad in all those ways to, to be here. Um, there are some kind of standard things in books about the middle class, and particularly in books about the middle class by left liberals and and, uh, radicals. Um, One of them is this uh, sinking, falling, vanishing, disappearing set of tropes uh, that almost all of the titles tend to focus on. And I probably wouldn't have focused on that. In the title, except that I wanted to highlight this great uh, George Orwell quote that uh, actually serves as the epigraph uh, for the book. So it is about the same thing that those books are about uh, that is, about the precarity of middle class, so called middle class life uh, in the United States. Um, So it does share that, but it's also much more broadly about. a middle class that's uh, sinking under its own uh, weight of miseries and and uh, contradictions. Uh, uh, a middle class that, uh, as the great Terry Eagleton says, uh, is asked to be uh, Puritans in the office and, and anarchists in the shopping mall. Uh, the uh, working class that's disciplined and uh, for whose whose ill-discipline the system actually. Uh, relies upon. So it's that kind of broader sense of sinking that is meant to be ultimately evoked uh, by the title. There's another kind of standard thing, particularly in Marxist uh, books about the middle class and in the field of working class studies, uh, which I'm a part of. um, For a long time, a lot of us have sort of wistfully said if only people uh, who have working class jobs would think of themselves as working class instead of middle class. And so there's this attention to uh, pointing out that the vast majority of US society is actually um, in working class social locations. Um, And uh, Michael Zweig, for example, is a great proponent of this idea. And I began the project very much wanting to endorse that. And I still think it's it's worth uh, endorsing that uh, uh, people have working class problems uh, and uh, the more that they uh, acknowledge and face those problems as working class people and the more that they join working class organizations, uh, the better off we're all uh, going to be. On the other hand, as I learned about um, the literature on the middle class, I I became impressed by the fact that uh, it's not entirely uh, people getting bamboozled into thinking that they're middle class, that there actually are these kind of specific uh, sets of miseries that have adhered to middle class life but also applied to working class people who claim middle class uh, status. And so there are actually material reasons that people Uh, describe themselves as middle-class and far as to only say no, you're working class, you face it, uh, A, doesn't work, and B, actually misses some of the social experience of uh, middle-class life, Uh, mostly miserable social experience in certain ways of being bossed and certain ways of being uh, indebted. Uh, So all of that runs through the book. And then there's quite a lot in the book about uh, the function that the middle class has played in political discourse in the United States since uh, the uh, 1992 election, when we started to have uh, presidential elections that are very largely fought over who gets the mantle of being the savior of the middle class. And so I uh, probably a third of the book is in various ways about this kind of political discourse and the way it shapes how we think about uh, class outside of politics. So one of the reasons that people are so um, uh, ready to accept the fact that this is a middle class society is that whenever anybody talks about class from a presidential uh, candidate pulpit, uh, that's what they're talking about. They're not talking about the, the working class at all. They're talk- talking about the middle class. And this is something that I actually noticed at the time uh, during the Clinton campaign. I uh, registered, I don't think I've ever heard people talk about middle class in such an obsessive way. And then going back and doing the research, it does turn out that this was a watershed moment in which first the Democrats and then the Republicans began to pitch their presidential discourse, their appeals, uh, specifically to saving the middle class. And so much of the book is about how that happened and then what the negative implications are. Uh, moving forward for settling for that kind of view of how CLASS works in the the United States. So I'll stop there.
0: Thank you. Do you want to take the second question, Bobby?
1: Yes, okay. So with that being said, with all of these, issues with middle class and people identifying with middle class or choosing to identify with work, excuse my cat, I'm sorry, um, choosing to identify with middle class over working class. How do we get people to confront that they are actually working class and not necessarily middle class or that that idea is, I guess, sort of problematic because it masks some issues that the middle class faces. Um, And then how do we what possibilities open once we're able to get people to confront this identity that we all have these certain things in common as working class slash middle class folks
2: well i i think as i said that i don't think that sort of hectoring people on this subject uh necessarily works i think maybe the place to begin and this is not what the book is about but this is just my personal uh view I think we begin with saying, what what do you mean by middle class problems? Because the poverty of the political discourse around the middle class is that it doesn't uh, uh, propose any solutions, uh, fundamental solutions to the problems of debt and certainly not to the problems of alienation and having one's personality judged at work, which I think is a key uh, source of middle-class misery. There have been some uh, suggestion by pollsters in the last 15 years that as uh, inequality rises and the uh, uh, middle class, uh, or at least the middle uh, sections of the uh, population in terms of income and wealth, as their share of income and wealth dwindles, that there will be a kind of an automatic process Uh, through which people disidentify uh, with the middle class. And I think that that is happening to a certain extent. All of these polls, it depends a lot on how you pose the question and whether working class is is offered as one of the prominent choices uh, in the poll. And if working class is offered, Zweig says that about half uh, of uh, United Statesians now uh identify as as uh working class but even if we take that uh that still probably leaves a quarter of the people who we would say well clearly this is a working class job and yet they're identifying as uh as middle class so um i think we we need to kind of confront the problem
1: Okay, um, I don't know what that was, but go okay. ahead. Um,
2: <laughs> but I, I think that um, a way to think about this is it uh, flows from the last part of your question. And that is, you know, what do we actually get out of uh, having these conversations? And I think what we get out of it is a way to say uh, that we, uh, we need unions, but we also need something like occupy something that takes up. Uh, that that uh, I, I've all i always heard about this happening on Facebook, and it's never happened to me before. I'm a little bit excited if this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. But I, I think that to be able to to see the need uh, to react to what seems to be an upturn in actual working class organization in the United States or at least a possible uh, upturn in this moment. But then to say that that organization needs to be, first of all, intersectional uh, in its emphasis on uh, race and gender and other axes of inequality. But secondly, it needs also to be open to, uh, the, uh, to thinking about how it is that we speak to people who think that their problems are middle class problems.
1: Um, Thank you for that. And I also really appreciate not just in this interview, but in others I've heard of you where you talk about intersectionality and you really do um, talk about race and gender and not just this class thing, because I think that gets lost. So I just want to say that. Um, The other thing that I wanted to to ask to follow up on that is I hear a lot of people talking about becoming entrepreneurs and everyone wanting to start their own business because everyone, and this is something I deal with, with like I said, my students, um, I teach community college courses and they all wanna be rich. They all, they, I traumatized them when I told them they were not gonna be in the 1%, 99% of us would not. And their response is always, well then what's the point of trying? what's the point in doing all of this? And it was like, well, isn't having a decent life part of that? So how do we break that up and get them to understand that just because you own a small business or maybe you're selling stuff online, that doesn't make you um, the bourgeoisie, that doesn't make you a capitalist, right? You are still working class because you are still paying rent. You still are having a lease maybe, you're still having to borrow material. All of that could be taken from you. You're not actually an owner. So how do we kind of wrestle with that with them and get them to engage when you tell them that maybe middle-class isn't something to ascribe to, cause like you said, there's all these struggles with debt and home ownership and all of these other things that come along with it. But then also it's still worth trying in life even though you're not going to be Bill Gates, right? Or you might not be, I'm not gonna say you won't cause life happens, but you probably won't. So how do we kind of yeah. wrestle with that? Um, and then I'll, after that, I'll let Rachel go ahead and ask you the next question.
2: Thanks. Yeah, um, yeah I think that the, the middle class is such a sprawling thing it's not a, of course a class in Marxist terms where everybody in it exists in some relationship to social relations and in, in in production uh, that it's so sprawling that whenever anybody starts to write about it they end up having to just kind of silently assume that it's only that they're going to talk about one little corner of it so for C. Wright Mills it was white collar it, a pretty broad book talked about sales workers and it talked about clerks and, and it does talk about entrepreneurs uh, a little bit. Um, for Barbara Ehrenreich and John Ehrenreich and, uh, and others on the Marxist tradition, uh, they tend to talk about the professional managerial class at, in a way that sort of slides into supposing that that's actually uh, exhaust what we mean by, uh, by middle class. For right-wingers, uh, they want to talk about entrepreneurs as the middle class. And then when we uh, are uh, lectured about all of the supposed virtues of the middle class, it becomes pretty clear that what they mean is small business uh, people have those, those virtues. Only when I did the book and looked up the figures, only about a, a person in 16 in the labor force is an entrepreneur uh, in the United States. So. We're not talking about a group with a lot of electoral weight or or social weight, but ideologically, it's a very, very important uh, group. And for people who wanna pretend that the United States has this long national tradition as a middle-class country, those entrepreneurs are the link to farmers in the 19th century and small businessmen in the 19th century. And in fact, of course, in the 20th century, in the 21st century, very few people called middle class are, are in those uh, self-employed positions a bigger category is failed entrepreneur because uh, small businesses uh, so regularly go out, out of business uh, there are quite a number of people who are in and out of being uh, entrepreneurs and uh, are mostly out so um, I think it's a it's a, a group of people that's really worth uh, thinking about because they have so much uh, political weight. Here in Kansas, uh, entrepreneur is kind of the magic word of politics. And because it's the magic word of politics, it's become the magic word of university management, too. They all want to pose as being the most entrepreneurial uh, university. The upshot for us was that um, during the Brownback right wing even more right-wing than usual uh, years in, in of uh, governing Kansas, uh, entrepreneurs became untaxed at the state level. And once that happened, a lot of people decided that they were entrepreneurs. Our $7 million a year basketball coach decided that he actually made his money from running a basketball camp and was therefore an entrepreneur and was untaxed. Uh, so uh, I, I think it's a very, very potent Category uh, in terms of connecting ideas about the middle class to ideas about American exceptionalism, American exceptionalism and the kind of unique uh, car- national character of the United States. Thanks.
0: So, as you talk about, since the middle class is such a broad category, um, it's. In like colloquial terms, it's being used like more and more to define sort of a set of cultural markers and a very specific type of person rather than like a social class with a clear definition. You talk a little bit in your, or more than a little bit in your book about the history of how that understanding came to be. And you point to Macomb County and Stanley Greenberg's work with the Democratic Party. um, And he sort of lifted that up and you call it like a caricature of the white American middle-class. Can you explain that a little bit and explain like what's so special about Macomb County um, and a little bit about how that developed in the political consciousness?
2: Yes, thank you, uh, Rachel. I, um, I said at the beginning that I thought that a, one of the three major themes of the book was this question of how middle-class gets used as a, as a political uh, category And um, the larger argument uh, in which this is embedded is that the United States has not historically been particularly a middle-class country. That uh, if you look at the best ways we have of looking at word usage in printed materials, uh, the United States, uh, the words middle-class didn't appear very much at all uh, in US discourse until the 1930s. Uh, and they started to uh, climb in the 1930s, uh, partly based on kind of uh, corporate initiatives to declare that the CIO didn't amount to much, that this was the uh, mass trade union movement didn't amount to much, and that instead this was a middle class country. So the big turning point is a special issue of Fortune magazine in 1940, which really lays out this view that almost everybody thinks they're middle class in the United States and almost that it's un-American to not think that you're, that you're middle-class. So, um, but then the real rise of the term middle-class uh, was during the Cold War. And the, the uh, Cold War uh, discourses kind of used middle-class uh, to stand in for suburban, to stand in for white, uh, to stand in for uh, stay-at-home moms uh, out of the workforce. Uh, So, one way to think about this is to think about the rise of uh, Ronald Reagan as a cultural figure, which really wasn't very much as an actor uh, connecting him to his political success. It was as an advertiser and as a host of TV programs, and he often hosted those programs uh, from his very suburban, very uh, they were brought to you by GE, so very technically hooked up uh, houses. my friend the architectural historian Diane Harris has a book called White Houses that are that's really about uh, these kind of houses that uh, uh, Reagan was supporting uh, but also um, not just the houses but the styles of life that took place in those houses and the gender relations that uh, took place in those houses so it's no accident that when uh, Nixon and Nikita Khrushchev. Nixon is vice president in the late 50s. When they square off about the superiority or inferiority of the US uh, system, they do it in a model kitchen. It was actually Khrushchev that contrived to have the debate happen in a model kitchen in, in Russia, uh, but Nixon loves it too. And they, they uh, Khrushchev goes on about how stupid juicers are and how it's more work to clean the juicer, as we all know, uh, than it is to... Uh, to just uh, do it by hand. Um, but then Nixon responds by, by uh, pointing to all these gadgets in the model kitchen and saying this is the liberation of women and they don't have to uh, be served by childcare and cafeterias and uh, do their own laundry. Uh, so this kind of uh, middle-classness is very much a Cold War US ideal. Ironically, at the very moment that this gender system is kind of breaking down, it's that the the feminine mystique happens and uh, women in the middle class uh, much more often work uh, as the period uh, goes on. So, But even so, all of that time uh, during the Cold War, the early and middle stages of the Cold War, there's very little use of middle class as a political appeal. It's really only as the Democrats begin to agonize over Reagan winning over so many of their white male working-class supporters, the so-called Reagan Democrats, that uh, people get the idea that it might be possible to uh, make appeals to a specific middle-class audience in U.S. politics. And I think I wouldn't quite bold enough to say it in the book, but I think it kind of depended on the waning of the Cold War to be able to, to say that, that During the Cold War, it would have been too partisan to interfere with the national propaganda around middle class. Uh, But as the Cold War waned, you could uh, begin to get this rhetoric. And the the key person in it and the key place is Stanley Greenberg in Macomb County. So Greenberg is a former Marxist professor who becomes a right center uh, pollster for the Democratic Party and is assigned uh, to go to uh, Michigan to figure out where these Reagan Democrats can't come from. And he goes to Macomb County, which is an auto working and tank building uh, county, high union density outside of Detroit, 99% white. And he says, I'm going to have these focus groups of people here, and they're going to explain to us who the Reagan Democrats are. So he gathers these people in homogenous groups. The the county's all white, so the groups are all white, but they're also initially all male or all female and much more often all all male. And he sort of invites them to uh, uh, gripe about the the world uh, to get a sense of what their uh, grievances are. But none of the groups take place in workplaces or in union halls, which were both integrated uh, in, uh, Macomb County, uh, because people are coming into the plants, uh, to work, but instead they're these all white spaces. And I came to think of them more like encounter groups than, uh, sites of polling that they were places where people were encouraged to be their worst about, about race. So they say to him thing, he reads him a passage from Bobby Kennedy, uh, a speech by Bobby Kennedy. And they say to him, things like, um, well, no wonder they shot that guy. I, I completely understand why they would have shot uh, Bobby Kennedy. And he doesn't present that as as appalling or something that uh, requires political address or requires building a, a black labor coalition to, to end. He sees it as something that the, um, that the Democrats have to conciliate. And he, uh, for a long time, thinks of these The subjects of the interviews as white working class people. But then he titles his book about the election and about his breakthrough strategy that helps Clinton uh, win in in 92. He calls that book middle class dreams. And in doing so, he tells us that we're supposed to understand we're meant to understand that when we say middle class, we mean white middle class uh, in the United States. So the appeal becomes a way to not have to talk about the working class, but also to be able to say to black people, uh, you can't ask for very much, this is the time of Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition, you can't ask for very much uh, because if you do, then these Reagan Democrats will leave the coalition and and will lose. And that I think becomes kind of the key now for almost 30 years the bargain that we've made in the way that we think about uh, politics. I just read an article in Politico this week, uh, talking about the Biden Republicans, and what a a stroke of genius it's been to get these Biden Republicans uh, back in or in to uh, the Democratic uh, voting ranks. But the implication is that they have to be the cherished group and that uh, Macomb County has to be the key site for thinking through uh, political strategy. So at the very moment that the electorate becomes the most diverse, the key group to focus on becomes the white middle class. Thanks.
1: Thank you. I'm, I am I kind of, when you were talking, started thinking about the Obama-Trump voter that they focus so much on, right, which now you talk about being like the Trump-Biden voter. So I, I was getting that kind of feel. Um, so our last question is going to be about academia specifically. and you know, in colleges and in higher education, we tend to reproduce, right? We're class reproductive, it's class reproduction, excuse me, and how we're wrestling with that, but also we have these hierarchies within higher education. And so we have sometimes, or at least what I've experienced and I've seen is that we have um, certain professors specific and most especially tenured faculty who don't necessarily see themselves as workers um, in the same way that maybe contingent faculty do, or like, so how do we bridge those divides and get, again, these people to recognize themselves, right? To get faculty to recognize themselves as workers, like we're not above other workers um, and other labor union movements. And then also the idea that if you go to college, that's your ticket to middle-class dreams and middle-class life, when really it leads to most of us being in debt, we can never pay back. And um, you know, dealing with those things, and then you don't get the job that's going to pay because we know wages have stagnated and all of this. So how do we kind of wrestle with that within academia that we're reproducing class hierarchies, um, that we have these hierarchies within academia themselves, and then dealing with student debt and what that means for folks? Because obviously we want people to go to college, we value it as professors, but we have to come to terms with some of these issues as well.
2: Yeah, I think there. Two dimensions: one about the faculty itself and its uh, proletarianization, but also its mystification of professors' class uh, position. Uh, so, you know, this is another case. The first one, and then I'll talk about uh, students in general and the and the middle and middle class reproduction. Uh, after that, um, this is another case: the, the faculty one where the emiseration produced by the system is likely to have some impact on how people think about themselves because we're starting to cross that threshold in which uh, most uh, academic labor is casualized uh, labor and in new categories like teaching professionals, but as lecturers, as adjuncts, as people who are cobbling together uh, many different uh, positions. you know, I think the last contract of the uh, CUNY system in New York, uh, there was an argument about whether it was uh, reasonable to set a limit of eight courses per semester on how much people can can teach as adjunct labor or not. And the argument of the of the uh, casualized workers was, we need to teach eight courses if we're going to live in in uh, in New York uh, City. So. I think that's a big part of it. But at the same time, I think that that kind of tends to reinforce the image of uh, tenure and tenure track position that, uh, professors as being this kind of uh, aristocracy of labor or, they would say, middle class uh, inside the, the universities. And this is a very long-standing thing, I think, a kind of a refusal to identify with working people by uh, professors. It's not that it doesn't show up in union density so much. A lot of uh, faculties are unionized uh, now, uh, but it, it shows up in attitude. And, and we're at Kansas in an organizing drive now. And uh, some of the people that I think of as surely a radical, uh, it turns out that they really it's a barrier for them to think about themselves as workers. My friend Chris Newfield, who's the great expert on higher education in California uh, now, uh, wrote me the other day saying that he thought that this kind of um, attitude professionalism uh, among uh, tenure track faculty and tenured uh, faculty even made them unable to fight outside of unions within universities, made it, uh, them unable to fight for their own departments because he said, this, it, it just seems too much like what he called displaced labor militancy if you stand up for yourself and your rights uh, inside a university. So that's the faculty side. The, um, the student side, um, for 35 years, and I used to teach at other places, most of the classes had 700 people a class so for 35 years, I've asked students to, to what class they belong to in these classes. I think maybe 15 or 20,000 students over the years. And I probably haven't had 50 students say something other than middle class. So all hands go up when you say middle class. And then uh, I'll say, well, some, is there any, any dissent? And some people, it turns out, weren't listening and didn't raise their hand. But then uh, other people will uh, say very rarely, I'm, I'm poor, sometimes working class. Uh, Mark uh, Soderstrom's in the audience. And when I was at Minnesota, I had a student uh, in a big history class who said that he was a member of the ruling class and got a, a tremendous laugh from the, <laughs> the people in, in the class. Um, But that's so rare, because I think that the university really is a site of middle class reproduction. And I think that some of these identifications as middle class or working class are highly situational. So maybe on the job, you know, somebody who's an Amazon worker and trying to get a college education at the same time, uh, might not only think that they're uh, middle class, but this in this setting, and particularly, as you say, as people take on so much debt, in order to reproduce or produce a middle-class uh, status. It's very, very striking how much uh, it's overdetermined that everybody's going to, going to say they're middle-class in that, in that setting, thanks.
1: No, thank you so much. I could pick your brain forever, but I won't. I will give our audience the chance to ask you questions. I'm gonna turn it over to Rachel because I think she's leading that charge, so.
0: Yeah, so um, thank you so much first we're going to go to Mike Nugent for a question talking about how we can expand this discussion internationally. Um, Everyone else can also feel free to drop it in the chat if they have other questions.
3: Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, Thanks, David. Um, I I had a question uh, around stakes, basically, kind of like if if someone is technically a worker, like, you know what I'm saying, but they, they, you know, they own a home and they have a 401k or they have a pension, does that give them more of a stake in the society? Like nothing, you know, the idea that they have something to lose and and more of a stake to uphold US, the U.S. setup and U.S. imperialism, you know, I guess, you know, and, and, and does that relate to like what, you know, the typical... Uh, or the traditional like Marx Marxist explanation of a uh, labor aristocracy and or or is the situation more precarious than that um, and how and and how does that affect organizing I think you were speaking to that when you were like, speaking to the focus on you know some of the focus around white the white working class versus you know and the racial implications of that but I, that was a question I had
2: yeah yeah um... Michel Foucault, the great French theorist, late in his life, he began to talk uh, for a minute about this, what he was calling the entrepreneurialism of the self. So that I think his argument, insofar as I understand it, would have been that, yes, only one person in 16 is an entrepreneur. But uh, people think about themselves as entrepreneurs for a variety of other reasons. And one of them would be home ownership. And not only uh, home ownership in the sense of uh, possessing something, but uh, home ownership within a market and people buying homes to, in order to invest and to think that they'll be able to parlay that into uh, a bigger home or a retirement or something else. Um, he had in mind something uh, beyond just owning things. Uh, though uh, and uh, beyond I think a labor aristocracy and was pointing out that everybody's kind of uh, meant to be an entrepreneur of their own bodies now so that and of their own retraining so when I started to do working class studies people switch jobs on average after 20 about four times during a career and now they might be on track to switching jobs a dozen times or or two dozen times during a career. So you're constantly having workers having to think about whether uh, their own uh, skills are being undermined, and they're having to think about education, not just as going to college or not going to college and whether that pays off, but as dropping out of the labor force in order to retool uh, uh, at different stages of life. So all of this uh, becomes a kind of um, entrepreneurialism that's internalized. That you, you say, "Oh yeah, I'm part of this." And, and you know some people are uh, uh, day trading, and you know even though they don't have much money, they're day trading. And but that's just, that's the minor part. I think the the more major part is there's this kind of, I'm a proprietor of myself. Uh, and Marx talked about this uh, even in the nineteenth century. Sadia Hartman talks about it as something that freed people faced after slavery—that they all of a sudden owned themselves and were uh, tempted to think of themselves as being proprietors of their own bodies. Uh, all of a sudden, now, so I, I, I recognize that there are all of these things uh, that uh, tend to link uh, uh, working people. Uh, people who don't have any productive property and any hope of ever having productive property, but they still uh, are tied to this entrepreneurial society in a certain way. So I think your question helps us to get at that.
1: Okay. Um, thank you. So we actually had a Facebook question um, and it's from Steve, I hope I'm saying this right, uh, Henry, Heron. We, um, so the quote um, is time out for consumption is becoming more important than time for production. Do you, end quote, do you think this is at the root of the middle-class lifestyle, even though the term itself doesn't get much play until about 1940, as you say. So uh, I'll just repeat the quote again, time out for consumption is being more important than time for production. Oh, it's a quote from Advertising Age found in the Captains of Consciousness by Stuart Ewen in Mm -hmm.
2: 1976. Yeah. And that book was a big influence on me. I'm glad to hear it uh, mentioned, but it was all about consumption. And and, uh, one of the things that hasn't happened since it was written is that we actually do end up with more leisure. We're still working uh, about the same number of hours a, a week on average as United States that we were then maybe even a little more maybe distributed now in uh, two or three jobs that we travel uh, between. So um, I, I tend to think not so much about production versus consumption as a kind of a speed up of both. And part of the way that I talk about in the book, the, the misery uh, of the middle class or the middle class as a site of misery is that it's this place where the work is very uh, alienating and still very long in terms of how much of our lives it, it, it takes up. And it's a kind of work for middle class people going all the way back before 1940 as the question says It's a kind of work in which the boss judges uh, our personality as well as our productivity. So one of the things that I think made people start to believe that they were middle class was that they were being bossed in a different way. Uh, An industrial uh, manager didn't really care uh, how pleasant a person you were uh, if you could lift 47 tons of pig iron a day in the Taylor example, that was the productivity was the key. As you get uh, an equally large segment of the uh, uh, workforce in sales and in offices, uh, it does become a matter of attention. Or maybe it was always, if we go back to Bartleby and fiction about white collar workers in the uh, 19th century, uh, the personality of the uh, of the worker is very important in that setting and particularly the personality of the women worker. In an office is under uh, judgment, and the salesperson sort of uh, recognizes that he or she is selling uh, personality. So this is a very um, difficult way to be to be managed. Uh, the uh, Dale Carnegie's famous books on how to win friends and influence people uh, are very much about how you get along in an office and how you you sell yourself. He has these exercises and other books like his have these exercises that say um your asset as a worker as a office worker is your smile but it can't just be a pretty smile it has to be a sincere smile so i can teach you how to smile sincerely involves a mirror and kind of practicing and you you end up practicing sincerity well that's a you know if you're doing that and still for 45 hours a week and that's a part of your your job. This is a case where the kind of uh, office management has seeped into other jobs. So even if you work in the back at McDonald's now, a substantial part of your performance evaluation is how pleasant you are. And there's this whole connection of happiness and management where if you're a little bit not happy or not happy appearing, uh, you're seen as disloyal uh, to, the, uh, to the corporation, uh, even if no customers see it, you, you, you're, you're expected to have a certain kind of personality. So if you do that for 45 hours, so my argument with economist Juliet Shore, uh hear a lot that you get caught in these cycles in which your laboring life is so miserable that your life as a consumer uh, takes on tremendous compensatory uh, importance and therefore uh, you're tempted to go further into debt and you're uh, uh, then requ- you're, you're required to work even more hours to pay off that debt. So this this kind of cycle of, of misery that uh, Eagleton talks about in terms of Puritanism in the office and anarchy uh, in the the shopping mall is uh, something that's experienced uh, personally and it's experienced at a systemic level. I mean, when when we hear good economic news, when uh, the uh, government economists release good economic news, it means a longer work week that is more overwork and it means more consumer confidence in surveys, meaning more willingness to undertake debt. So it's not just that individuals are tempted to get into this cycle, but the system requires the cycle. And and, uh, that's the health of the economy to have people caught in in this cycle.
0: As a long time food service worker, I can definitely attest to the fact that having to perform so much on the job doesn't just end. Um, after the work day, it definitely just rewires your brain. Um, Following up on that emotional labor question, um, and really talking about mental health in general, we're going to go to Joe Ramsey, um, a co-producer of the show and a frequent host, and also my Great,
4: thank you, Rachel. Thank you, David and Bobby Lee for, you know, leading us into this great rich conversation. Our first Saturday show here at Shelter and Solidarity. For those who haven't uh, been you know, aware of us before. We're usually on Thursday nights, so please do look for us, um, you know, beyond this. um, I'm really excited about this new endeavor. Uh, My question, following up on a number of points that have been hit, uh, David, I wanted to uh, cite a statistic I recently read, actually I heard of from another student I'm working with, in addition to Rachel, um, about mental health and debt. This is from Ian Ferguson. I think these numbers are from the UK, but I imagine they're just as applicable in the US. Uh, And the notion was um, that, of people who report having severe, like serious mental health problems, uh, 45%, I should say, of people who have significant debt, they report 45% of these people report having mental health issues. Whereas people who report not being in debt uh, only report uh, having serious mental health issues at 14%, right, a a tripled perspective. Now, noting that obviously debt, this is a correlation, not a clear causation here. I wondered what you like how your analysis of the middle class uh, myth versus reality and that huge gap really between kind of identity and reality um, manifests at the level of mental health, and, and specifically in the United States. And what opportunities or obstacles to organizing uh, people around their material conditions do you think this kind of what many people are calling a mental health crisis um, you know, kind of produces? Uh, so I guess, I mean, I'm kind of trying to pick up the on the idea that you're saying the way to get people to think beyond middle-class identity is not just to like Hector them ideologically, but to engage with their real material conditions. So um, is there some, you know, what's your ideas about how debt can be organized around? Uh, do you see debt itself as uh, kind of providing openings for kind of organizing middle-class people, but in a way that allows them to transcend and maybe uh, move beyond some of that middle-class identity? Um, thank you.
2: Well, I think we saw that in Occupy. One of the, as it turned out, one of the uh, issues that really got traction in the long run coming out of Occupy was student debt and uh, organizing around it. And I think that Occupy was also a kind of a barometer of the ways that social movements are places of uh, mutual support for mental health and in in this, uh, in this moment. So I, I find it a little bit hard to read that evidence about the 45% and 14% because uh, I think it's um, that as uh, we flounder emotionally, uh, consumption becomes one way uh, to uh, believe that we're self treating uh, in that. And then also, uh, of course, as we flounder, it becomes harder and harder to uh, stay employed. And so there's a, a big part of the, of the middle of people who self-identify as middle class are homeless uh, in the United States now and in some cases have a kind of a worked out uh, strategy about their homelessness. They're, they've moved to California in order to be to because there are so many relatively well-paying nursing jobs in California but they can't yet afford to uh, rent in in uh, California, so they and their children are maybe living in a in a car. Uh, in that, uh, and many are hungry. And, and we the earlier question about uh, universities is you know you can read all kinds of uh, estimates ranging from ten to thirty five percent of how many uh, university and community college students are. Are chronically hungry in the United States, and, and schools now uh, increasingly have programs to address that hunger. Uh, so, you know, I think that, that there's a kind of a, a room for precarity uh, inside the, the, the middle class. Obama said, Obama def- defined the middle class when he, he, Obama, much more than anybody else. Uh, successfully and constantly appealed to the to the middle class and somebody pointed out to him once they almost never talked about the poor in uh, his rhetorical appeals and uh, he said well the poor are aspirant middle class people so if I talk about the middle class I'm not I'm not ignoring the poor I'm talking about what the poor want me to to uh, talk about but it's not just aspirant Uh, The poor are not just aspirant middle class people, they're also fallen middle class uh, people. And we see this in the statistics on on hunger and uh, homelessness, I think. Joe, if if I could just say one more thing about the public health and middle class, Uh, there's an epidemiologist at Columbia named Seth Prins who does really interesting work Trying to think about the professional managerial class and health, including mental health, but also uh, 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 physical diseases that um, track stress. And he finds that people who have jobs as nominal managers, but with no uh, uh, authority to uh, influence policy decisions, they're just. bossing two or three people around in an arbitrary way that's set by people above them, that they're in, in extraordinarily uh, uh, exposed positions in terms of both their physical and their mental health because they're in this, what the sociologist Eric Wright called uh, contradictory class uh, location. They would call themselves probably uh, middle class, but they don't have any authority and they often don't have very much salary Uh, and he finds them sicker uh, than many, many other segments of, of society. Thank you for that, David.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And as you were talking, it reminded me, I had put it in the chat of a quote my aunt said to me once, which was, she's from the generation where the more debt you have, the better your life is. Um, And so just that, when you were talking, I was thinking about that. Um, So our last question, I think it's gonna be our last question, we have seven minutes left, is actually gonna come from Kira. So Kira, go ahead and ask away.
0: Hi everyone, thank you for having me on. So I wanna ask, we hear about uh, emerging middle classes all across the world now, when we think of like um, the development of Africa or even in India and China. Uh, do we expect the same questions and conversations happening, and even uh, the same like dark turns that we've seen here in the United States to play out? Uh, we've already seen even fascist terms when when we think of like the election of Trump um, and the politics he espoused, and in even Modi's politics now in India.
2: Yeah. Yeah. One of the um, um, the most uh, fascinating things about the reception of this book for me is, is how much it's uh, being bought and read abroad. Uh, Italy Italy, really, I've been on a, a number of things in Italy, uh, and it turns out that a, a number of people are understanding the United States as a kind of uh, harrowing example of the middle class in order to understand Italian. Uh, politics and realities. Uh, w- and also the kind of um, line between the middle class and the white working class is very much a concern of the Italian left. And it has to be a concern of the British left because uh, Brexit was fought out in, uh, in very familiar terms in terms of one minute, its base seemed to be the middle class and the next minute uh, people were talking about this I think, mythical white working class that uh, was supposedly the mass base of Brexit. But carry uh, even more so in in uh, in India. In fact, the, the one place where uh, sinking middle class was on a top 10 of the year list for 2020 was a, a big publication uh, in India. And when I thought about it, uh, I I wasn't as surprised as as, uh, initially because you do hear in India, you hear these predictions that uh, hundreds of millions of people uh, will be middle-class in 20 or 25 years uh, in India, that it will have by far the largest middle-class in the world. Turns out that the daily wage that they're setting for the middle-class is $4. A day, So, you know, it's, you could argue it, but there certainly is a, a, a great in the global south uh, 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 desire to enter the middle class. And there's a very great uh, commitment to a kind of entrepreneurialism of the self to a kind of uh, uh, getting ahead, uh, getting a vehicle becoming a, a Uber driver uh, uh to education to all sorts of things that we connect with uh, with middle class formation so I uh, I think this is a particularly u.S problem but it's also a, a problem that the world uh, is confronting in very different ways uh, and is interested in the. US because of the ways that it's uh, it's confronting those uh, the the comment from uh, your grandmother about the debt leading to good, good lives. That was historically true. uh, One uh, badge of middle-class status was to be able to get uh, uh, loans for consumer uh, consumption. And and the brilliant connection by the uh, lenders was to connect uh, overspending and character. And so it was uh, the, the middle class was a badge of character and character was what you needed to have uh, uh, alone. And so therefore, you would, you would think in those terms that you would think, oh, this means I'm a middle class person I can have alone. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much um, for this. We are going to try to squeeze in one last question um, from co-producer Mark Soderstrom.
4: Yes, Dave, thank you so much. This has been a really rich and wonderful hour Um, and we are almost out of time. So I'll try to be short, which is not my skill. Um, But I'm fascinated that you talk about the the height of the appeal to middle-class as that status is becoming in endangered, right? That we see a rising appeal as as the status actually declines. And I'd wondered if you would comment um, on sort of the role of the power of nostalgia in in this situation and the political power of nostalgia. And how do we fit that as Marxists? How do we how do we account for the ideology power of nostalgia as sort of material Marxists? I mean, I feel like nostalgia shows up in the brumaire, but you don't see it in
2: capital very much, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. The whole Make America uh, Great Again uh, appeal is something that we're uh, prepared to wave away, but we're not really very prepared in terms of our toolkit to maybe uh, understand uh, very much. One thing I would say about this moment is that Marxists didn't really only ever, and Marx himself, uh, predict that the middle class was going to fall. They predicted that as it fell, it was going to be attracted to the much greater motion of the working class. So one of the reasons that the middle class is so um, unchallenged and that people are, it's that nostalgia that they that they look for, a middle class nostalgia, is that the labor movement has been so thoroughly defeated for such a long time. Now, if the labor movement, if You know, I know we predicted it started in Madison. It started at Republic Door uh, Windows, but but if Amazon is the start of a new uh, labor movement, uh, these class categories could change very very quickly because it's not only about the miseration of middle class people; it's about the motion of working class people that that determines how these things work out. Thank you so much. Um, So with
0: that unfortunately I feel like we could continue this discussion forever but unfortunately we have to stop. Um, so first I just want to thank you so much Dr. Rodiger, for joining us. Um, it was so great to have you. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share?
2: No just to say thanks to you. It was really a fun hour.
0: Thank you so so much. Um, I also want to thank our co-host Bobby Lee for joining us and doing such an incredible job. Um, Do you have anything you want to add?
1: no, I mean, this could have gone for like five hours. I have so many other questions I want to ask. So, um, but with wrapping that up, I just start thinking about, this makes me think about what does this look like for millennials, especially younger millennials and Gen Z and how they engage with this. Cause I don't think we engage with debt and um, work life the same way that previous generations did. So um, that's just where my brain is at now is thinking about this and what does that look like for the future? But again, thank you so much for spending this time with us and for all of our guests who came and watched this and engaged with us. Thank you. It's been great co-hosting with you, by the way, Rachel. I have loved this. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I also have um, just of like my own questions. I have about two and a half pages worth (laughs) written down for you. Um, So I could do part two, three, four, five. Um, So thank you so much to the co-producer of this specific show, Kira Mudliar who worked so hard on this. And then thank you to the entire SNS production team, Saren so Mudliar, Joe Ramsey, Linda Liu, Mark Soderstrom, and Tim Sheard. So our normal shows are bi-monthly on Thursday evenings. Um, you can find our upcoming shows on our website, shelterandsolidarity.org. Um, our next Thursday show is at 7 Eastern time on April 15. It's gonna be on Arts and Resistance, and they're going to be a lot of artists involved in social struggles, sharing their work um, and talking about their process. Um, so thank you everyone who has come tonight. And I also want to thank our co-sponsors, the Community Church of Boston, a free community for the study and practice of universal religion, On Anquantra Cinco, a movement building project in downtown Boston, Hardball Press, a publisher of Working Class Writers, Um, And they're available on hardballpress.com. And finally, Socialism and Democracy, a journal that brings together the worlds of scholarship and activism, theory and practice to imagine in depth the core issues and popular movements of our time. Thanks so much everyone for coming and I hope you have a great weekend. We are gonna end the live stream now, but feel free to stick around to chat for a minute or two if you want.